Well, good morning, Northside. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's my honor to, to share with you guys today. It's my honor to piggyback off of what Matt Allman started last week, talking about social influencers. And so whether you're online or whether you're here in the room, we're really glad that you guys are here. And while I don't think I've got a great um, delivery style, I'm very excited about the message I get to share today. Very excited about that. We're talking about social influencers. Matt kicked it off last week, and this is part two. And when I saw just the title, not the text, I was looking at social influencers, and I thought, okay, i got to find someone with skinny jeans to deliver this message because... I am not that guy, you know, I, this is not me. In, in fact, I was playing around with this in my head this weekend. I, for years, have talked with my wife about this. I, I play a game in my mind on a clothing index. And here's the clothing index. The clothing index is look at what you're wearing and add up the amount of years that are accumulated in those items of clothing. My clothing index right now is 12, in case you're wondering, and I'm kind of proud of that. I dressed up for you guys today. On a day off, it might be closer to my age, which is the goal. Not my wife's goal, but my goal. My goal would be to get a, a collective display of about 51 years. Now, that's fun for me, but if you're 16 and you have to play that game, you're scared to death, right? And that should be easy, but 16, you're like, I'm mortified if I have to have anything that old. And yet, and yet, to, uh, yesterday, I was looking on our bed, we had a delivery of clothing, and my my 20-year-old has us getting clothing for him and sending it to college. And I pulled out a shirt that I was excited about. And it was still in its little bag. And it was from a, a very fancy clothing store. And I looked at it and it said, vintage 90s baggy flannel. And I was like, yes. He's kind of cheating the system right there. But uh, I, my point in all that rant is just to say, I know that I'm not a social influencer. I know that I'm not trendy. But when we go back to the first century, we see these two people that we're looking at and what Jesus does with these social influencers. I think we're going to find something really, really interesting here. So last week, we were talking about Nicodemus and his ability and his, his social power that he had. Today, we're going to be talking about the woman at the well and the social power that she had. If you're following along in the scriptures, it's John chapter 4, 42 verses there. We're going to cover a lot of that relatively fast. But we got two very, very different people that Jesus is reaching here. And so I want to compare and contrast these a little bit. Back about 10 years ago, I was in a uh, doctoral program with uh, a lady by the name of Mary-Kate Morse, really sharp lady, and she had a book called Making Room for Leadership. And I was reading through that, and, and it stuck with me. And so as I was preparing for this, that just came up again because it's just a, a brilliant a quick flyover on what social power looks like. And we have social power in this room, some more, some less. But there's four different ways that you can have social power. We're going to compare and contrast Nicodemus and the woman at the well for just a minute. You've got expert power. You've got character power. You've got role power and culture power. And you guys can play along. It's, it's not like the clothing index. It's not quite that exciting. But you can start to think about this and where you might fit in this. Expert power, that's like Cristiano Ronaldo. Okay, this guy is worldwide known for being a fabulous soccer player. So well known, and he's got such social power that uh, right now in 2023, he is the number one um, revenue stream for Instagram. And when he posts something, it's $4 million to him. For a post, not bad, right? I don't understand that kind of expert power. I don't have it. But when you've got expert power, people 
are listening. It's like E.F. Hutton. And in the case of Nicodemus last week, we know this, that when Nicodemus would speak as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, as someone who was uh, honored and revered at the highest level of expertise, when he spoke, he had power. The woman at the well, not so much. The woman at the well, we know that uh, she did not have that kind of expertise. In fact, she didn't have much that we could talk about other than the number of husbands that she had had, five. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. She doesn't have that kind of power, and yet God is going to use her anyway. And for a minute here, it's going to sound like I'm beating up on the woman at the well, and I promise you I'm not. But I am trying to paint a contrast, and I believe John was trying to paint a contrast to say, here's Nicodemus and all he could have done. Here's the woman at the well and how low she was socially and yet what she did. And it should be hope for all of us. So Nicodemus wins the expert one. The character one, the character one should be obvious, right? When you say what you mean and mean what you say, when your word is good, it still matters even in 2023. It still matters. Nicodemus, he had impeccable character. There was no doubt about that. No one had to second guess him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. When he walked in a room, eyes would focus on him for all the right reasons. When the woman at the well would walk into the room, all eyes would focus on her for all the wrong reasons. Very, very different scenario for her. And once again, she did not have that social power. Moving on to the third one, role. Now, the role changes from time to time because in, in uh, years gone by, if you were a plumber, that was awesome. And right now, nobody 18 to 25 is aspiring to be a plumber. They all want to be social influencers. In fact, to the tune of about 75% of that demographic would prefer to be a social influencer, and they aspire to that. But I promise you, as they get their homes, the role of plumber is going to be esteemed once again. Right? It's going to happen. The trades are coming back. But it wasn't always that way. Pastors, in my opinion, I've said this before on this stage, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, pastors were held in high esteem in most places. Now, it's debatable in just about any place. Roles change from time to time. But in this scenario, first century, Nicodemus had elite status. I mean, he had the role to be a rabbi, to be a student of God's word, to know the Old Testament, and to be an expert in the law. I mean, that was the role to have at that time. People wanted that. Woman at the well? <clears throat> Not so much, right? Once again, we give that to, to Nicodemus. And cultural, this one also can change. This one, it's not so much the role, it's just what does culture crave right now? What does culture crave? Kylie Jenner right now is number three in Instagram with her marketing. And, and it's about beauty, it's about fashion, it's about things that obviously I don't understand. But she makes a lot of money doing it with no other talent that I'm aware of. <laughs> right? Didn't really think that was going to be funny. Okay, I got to make a note for next service. Got it? All right. And yet, when it gets to the cultural thing, once again, the woman at the well, you know, in that culture, in that time, the women didn't have the, the, the um, prestige over the man in that time. And the woman was tied so much to the man that if she was without the man in that time, not today, she was brought low. And so she was losing that battle too. I, I paint this picture with those four things to try to help us understand that when, when it comes to social power, he had everything and he didn't do that much with it. She had nothing and she did everything with it. 
John uses that contrasting style to paint a picture for us. Nicodemus came at night and left quietly. He approached Jesus. Jesus approached the woman at the well in midday, and she left and talked to everybody. Amazing. Nicodemus sought out Jesus. Jesus sought out the woman. Nicodemus carried the body of Jesus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, to a tomb. The woman at the well got to carry the hope of a living Savior to a people group that just didn't have hope. Isn't that awesome? There's a contrast there, and we're about done here with Nicodemus, but we've got to dive in to talk about this woman at the well. And so as we look at, thir- at 42 verses here, I've got to ask the question, what's the main thing? Because if you're, if you're trying to really honor God's word, what's the main thing? You better keep the main thing the main thing. And Mark Moore helps us out with this in Quest 52, page 80. He says this about the main thing. His main message was not global peace, though it would lead to that. It wasn't inclusion, though it implied that. It wasn't moral righteousness, though he modeled that. It wasn't the theology of God, though he embodied that. The message was simply and exclusively this. I am the promised Messiah. And I would just take it one step further and say, if we can paint a slightly broader picture, he is the promised Messiah, and he's entrusting this fantastic news to a woman with no social power. And that should be hope for all of us. So I've got these scriptures in three different blocks here. I'm going to read the first block first. I'll call this the water section of this dissertation here. So verses 4 through 15 says this about water. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us the well to drink from himself and for his sons and for his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I might not be thirsty and not have to come here to draw water. If you're paying attention to that, it's a weird verbal jujitsu, isn't it? You're wondering what's missing in the context because he'll say something and she says something that doesn't seem to make sense and and they go back and forth and what just happened? And this will happen throughout the dialogue. I I can't wait to unpack this with you. That jujitsu looks like this. Jesus says, give me a drink and he's, he's got nothing in his hands and she says, well, why would a Jewish man ask for anything from a Samaritan? She didn't say yes or no to the drink. She just asked that question. Okay, so his response, okay, well, if you knew who was asking for the water, you'd be giving it, and then he'd be giving you so much more. And then she says, well, you don't seem so capable. You're the one asking for a drink, right? Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? Now she's asking bigger picture questions. And he says, well, yeah. (laughs) I'm glad you asked. I am. I'd like to give you the water that completely satisfies you. And then she says, well, give me the water. Because I'm tired of making the trip in the heat of the day. Now, if the goal was to give her water, he had her right there. Whatever verbal jujitsu just happened, she's like, I'm thirsty, give me water. Even though she's the one carrying the water jar. I'm thirsty, would you give me water? But something else happens here because he's interested in something else. 
He's communicating, first of all, that he's greater. He's greater than Jacob. And he has greater water than she could ever offer. He's so great that he is the promised Messiah, and we're building toward that. But at the end of this section, she's begging for water. It's the perfect lead-in, but he does something different. Because what he was hearing from her is, I want convenience. Now think about this. I'm going to step on a few toes. There's people that come to church that say, I'm looking for my life to get better. I'd like the convenience of Jesus. Don't bother me with convictions and don't bother me with truth. I just want convenience. And Jesus doesn't rush to the aid right there. In this case, he says, I, I hear your convenience. But let's talk about this. <clears throat> I'm more interested in your confession. And so we're going to talk about me as Messiah. And I'm more interested in you understanding the condition of your life so we're fixing the right thing. It's kind of like the, the parenting tip where the, the child is like, I just need the keys for the car. And we're saying, you really don't. Not at this moment, you don't. I need the new shiny car. No, you really, you really don't. There's a life lesson here. And there's the battle of wits that begins, right? There's a battle of wits that's beginning right here. I don't know if you've ever seen that before in this scripture. So he takes a right turn. She's thirsty and she's saying, go ahead, give me that water. I want the convenience. And look at what happens in this next section of scripture. We're going to call it worship. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, time doesn't allow me in a sermon to have the verbal pause that I think was there, but could you imagine? How does he know? What else does he know? Are we going to keep making eye contact, or are we just going to look away from each other at this point? Because this is, this is something. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. And this woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, will he tell us all things? Jesus said to her, I who speak am he. Do you see how much deeper this conversation is now than she was just thirsty looking for convenience? It's amazing how things just got to that point. And he has to go through some rough water to get there. Five husbands. In the mid-80s, my parents got divorced. In the mid-80s, it wasn't as common as it is today. In the mid-80s, it was still a little bit more socially awkward, and it was for this teenager. And I remember those eyes kind of looking at me, some of them looking at me too long, kind of to say, are, are, are you okay? And others would look at me and, and dart away. And in those first few weeks of, of, of that very, very visible separation were really painful. You don't choose that. Nobody chooses that. And some end up there. Can you imagine five in the first century, 
Five in the first century was a tight-knit community and the standards are so high. Can you imagine the whispers? Can you imagine the pain, the gossip? Can you imagine what had been happening? And by the way, I'm implying divorce. The scripture doesn't say divorce. It could have been death. It could have been five deaths. And that doesn't make it any less painful, does it? And think about the social power. And think about the struggle. So she's in a tough spot. She's in a real tough spot. Maybe that's why she's meeting him at noon at the well when all the other ladies were meeting early in the morning. Maybe she'd rather endure the heat of the day than the heat of conversations from scolding eyes. Maybe. So here we are, and now he's getting to the point because the Savior wants to save to the uttermost. And that was true in the first century and it's true today in 2023. He doesn't want to address the convenience as much as he wants to address the deeper things. Hmm. And then he says some things that are pretty harsh. The savior of the world, who should be neutral and, and embracing everything, says, you guys, uses that pronoun, you worship what you do not know. We, drawing lines, we, the Jews, worship what we do know. And he's making some contrast here. He's not trying to pick a fight but he's trying to paint a picture about the real scenario, what's really going on here. Hmm. I would suggest that he's doing this because Jesus wants something for her, not from her. And it might be the first time she's ever encountered that. Maybe that's true for us today. Maybe that's true today. Maybe those of us who come in here with the mindset of what does the church want from me, what are they going to ask me to do? Maybe we're missing it because maybe their true church, not the dead religion, but the true church is wanting something for you, not from you. Even when it comes to giving, even when it comes to serving, it's not from, it's for because we know what God is going to do with that. Maybe that's the case here. I've got a, a family member who visited me and my wife when we were in church together and uh, we were in a worship service like this, and she came from a, a very dead religion. I'll just say it that way. And she watched very analytically as the congregation worshipped. And she was checking out the smoke machines, the lights, the big screens. She was watching the response of the people with hands outstretched and joy. And she heard a message of hope. And she watched fellowship. And she came out knowing what we do for a living. She goes, you know... Your church really believes what you're saying. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for, for so many, there's a dead religion where it's like, well, we say these things, but then we endure that and get out of there and go do something else. Jesus wants for her, not from her. He's trying to pull her to a right fellowship. It's a really important distinction. So here she is at noon and it's too hot, but maybe when she gets to that really hard conversation with Jesus and he says, you've had five and the one you're with is not your husband, it, some theologians would say, well, she changed her mind. She says, oh, this is awkward. Let's talk about worship. Do you worship at that mountain or this mountain? Switch the game up. But some would say, and I would agree with this, maybe what she's saying is, you just called me out in a way that I could endure. And there's love in your eyes. And you know things you shouldn't know. You are a prophet. And I've got a burning question. Where do I worship? Because I want to worship. I, I want to do this right. 
Either way, he gives this great answer. He says, the Father's looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Isn't that incredible? I think through the scriptures, and he searches for the one that wandered from the 99, and he searches for the ones who will worship in spirit and in truth. And what he's saying, in essence, is it's not about a place anymore. It's about a person. It's not where you are, it's who you are. And so he says some incredible things here about truth and spirit. And truth, by the way, Jesus will say in John, later in this book, he'll say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. You see how exclusive that is? And yet there's an invitation, I am the truth. You come to the Father by me. And spirit, which is there, is not a capital S in the text. I wish it was, it'd be easier. Holy Spirit, got it, got the answer. But it's spirit lowercase, it's non-tangible. That's not the issue. It's spirit. And Jesus would later win that argument as well. Rather than the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God would be focused in a particular locale or over a particular person, the Holy Spirit is common property for any who trust in Jesus. And he's saying this is a spiritual thing. It's not a physical thing. You're looking in the wrong place. Look for spirit and truth. And oh, by the way, I hold the keys for both of these things. It's a great theological point that he's making. It's really important. And they're confused. I mean, in John chapter 2, just before this discussion here, they're talking with Jesus about the temple. You know, the temple that took 46 years to build. And Jesus says, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. What? You can't build this. They're thinking tangible. He's thinking spiritual. He's saying there's something about me that you need to know. And it's not arrogance. It's right when you're talking about the king, the savior, the Messiah. By the way, he took all this time, 42 verses, to talk with this lady. That's the longest recorded interaction one-on-one with Jesus in the scriptures. No social power. Which means nobody in this room is excluded from that authentic access to Jesus. Isn't that great? You know, he says he's the Messiah to her. He doesn't say it to Nicodemus, the theologian. He says it to her. And we know because if you grew up in the church, you know he's the Messiah. That's a given. He's Jesus and his last name is Christ. We know this, right? That is a joke. But he's got that occupation. We know who Jesus is. But at that time, to hear that, the weighted Messiah, the ones they were waiting for, it had to be amazing. When was the last time you heard a profound truth with fresh eyes? My wife and I have three adult children, and we've got an eight-year-old at home, and and the eight-year-old is enduring with us going through old movies, movies that are very, very familiar to us and she's never seen. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I, I got like three woos from that. We've been talking about Jesus, and you get woos for Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, anyway, so, so th- she's excited about that, and we were watching E.T., and we were nervous because we're like, is this scary to her? Is this funny to her? And when E.T. came out, she laughed, and we're like, okay, good. Whew. This is good. And then recently, we were at Empire Strikes Back, and she's been following along in these movies, and we get to that poignant moment, and most of the people here would know this, where Darth Vader has that bold statement, Luke. I am your father. And we're watching that thing. And yeah, we know that line. And Kenna goes, what? Wait, no. What? Blown away. I'm like, I wish I could see the gospel with fresh eyes like that. I really do. 
Sometimes it's too familiar, but Jesus is telling this woman of no social power, I am he, I am the Messiah. It's absolutely incredible. Which takes us to this last section of the scripture. We're gonna call it witness here. It's verses 27 through 30. Listen to what it says. Just then, okay, he just declared, I am the one, I am the Messiah. And then the disciples, with poor timing, come in at that moment. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, why do you seek? Or what are you talking to her about? So the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and to the people. And she said, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's amazing to me that they both met in the heat of the day at a well and neither one of them got a drink. It's amazing to me that she left that jar. And some would say she left the jar because she, her world was just altered and she just bolted and she didn't even think about it. Or maybe she was gracious. She's like, I know you're thirsty. I'll leave that for you. Or maybe like the disciples who were called at the seashore dropped their nets because they had something bigger to do and the tangible stuff wasn't even important anymore. Whatever the reason, she left it and she goes into town and she says, come, you gotta see this man who told me everything about me. Now, those of you that are a little more paranoid like I am, think about this for a second. You encounter a man who's told you everything about you, what do you do with that person? I send them to Europe on a one-way ticket. Stay away from my friends. They don't need to know this about me. And she's doing the opposite. She's like, he, he knows everything. Come see this guy. He'll tell you too. It's... It's not about her. Isn't that interesting? It's not about her. She's talking about him. And then she does something that I think is absolutely brilliant. She does something absolutely brilliant here. She could have said, now think about it, no social power. She could have come in and said, I found the Messiah. I'll prove it. She doesn't do that. She'd be shot down. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Rather than shooting me down, why don't you wrestle with this? Why don't you consider what to do with Jesus? Isn't that great? And they did. They wrestled with it. They considered this. What are we going to do with this? I wish we were there to see this. I know it's been replayed in, in, in great, uh, in great um, media recently, but I wish we could see how that encounter really went, that he could have those hard conversations. He could get right into her mess, and she would love him for it. I like to think that's how we operate with our Father, with our Savior, on a personal level, and maybe corporately. It's pretty special. So verse 39 says this, many, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Verse 41 and many more believed because of his word. Don't you love that? Verse 42, we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. So many believe because of his word. See, what happens is Jesus sends her ahead, and she begins to talk to everybody, and there's fruit. And then Jesus follows him and says, I'm going to stay a couple more days. <laughs> And I'm going to talk to him as well. She paved the way for me. Just like John the Baptist had done in a different way, here she is paving the way, this woman of no power. And they're listening. So Jesus comes and they believe in his word. They believe what's being said. And then they make this profound statement. Remember when Jesus said, you 
are over here with what you believe, but you're wrong, and we have the answers over here. And the Jews and the Samaritans, we haven't even gotten to this. They clashed. They fought. It was bitter. It was awful, those two people groups. But in this moment, the Samaritans got way ahead, and they said, this is the Savior of the world. Not King of the Jews. This is the Savior of the world. They're declaring something ahead of just about everybody, maybe even ahead of the disciples. He's not just the Savior of those people. He's the Savior Broadly speaking, and the Samaritans are getting it. I think they're ahead of the disciples. I think they're ahead of everybody. It's early in the ministry of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? I think it's absolutely fantastic. So back to social power for just a second. If we had it our way, we'd want to be treated like Nicodemus. We walk into a room and people lock eyes with us because they're longing to hear the wisdom that comes out of us. And yet, if we examine the skeletons in our closet, we're probably a lot more like the woman at the well. We don't like to admit that. We don't even want to dwell there, but we're probably there. And her worst secrets are on display for the world to see. In fact, she's known by them. Imagine, just for a second, if you take that one persistent, stubborn, gross sin of yours, and it was on display for the whole community to see. Oh, you'd want to just go into a hole somewhere, right? We've got those skeletons, right? And yet, this is the exact woman that God uses to convey the hope of the world. I love his style. It's still not about us. It's still about him. It's still about him. We're coming to Easter and in seven days, there's going to be people populating this place that otherwise may not come here. Because at Easter, people are more receptive than ever to the gospel. At Easter, they're more receptive than ever to an invitation to come to church. And many of us in this room have filled out or written on those light bulbs. We've screwed them into that wall, and it's a great image. But we have to go past that tangible to the conversation. And we've got cards out there, invitation cards for Easter. And we have to go past just the idea of them to the application of that idea, regardless of our social power, to be able to go out there and invite people because we know there's the hope of the gospel. He is the Savior, not of just the people who presently attend Northside. He's the Savior of the world. Amen? This is our Savior, and this is our opportunity. This is how we get to act. I want to finish by just thinking one more thought about this woman at the well. Some of you have life verses. They're, they're things that are on your bathroom mirror or they're written in a journal or they're written on your heart. If she has one, I think it's this. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 7 says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the foreknowledge of the glory of God to the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's possible that she left that jar because she is that vessel. She doesn't need it. She is the vessel. She is the jar of clay. And her job is to be set apart with spirit and truth to carry that hope 
to people that are thirsty. She could leave it behind because she was that jar of clay. She carried that hope. And the more simple the jar that we are, the more glory he gets. He gets the glory. He's the hero. So jars of clay, this week, would you please convey the hope that you have in you? Would you share it with a world that desperately needs to hear from their Savior? Not just for the convenience that he might bring, but for the salvation that he offers. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this crowd of believers that know you, that love you, that follow you. I pray that you would embolden us, regardless of our social status, to share the hope that we have. Thank you so much for women like this marginalized one that carried truth where we desperately needed to hear it. Empower us, embolden us, that you might be glorified, that you might be seen and heard from people who are currently blind and deaf to your truth. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Guys, have a great day, and if you need prayer, please stick around.